Let's pray. Father God, as we've been singing all morning, you are a God of grace, and we are people in need of grace. Thank you for the grace that you've given us, Christ your Son. Lord, help us to behold you now in your word. We confess that we need to hear from you. We do not have the answers in ourselves. Thank you for gathering us around your word to be taught, to be helped, encouraged, instructed. Lord, we confess that at times the night is dark. We know we are not forsaken, but it feels like it. We trust that Christ is by our side. So we labor on. Display your power now through your word, by your spirit we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost every morning, our sweet daughter, Thea, wakes up with a huge smile on her face. She's the only one in the house that wakes up that way. But it's wonderful to see. Ryan and Allison celebrated their wedding last year. It was no doubt a mountain peak of joy in their life. Chris Watts just finished a master's degree. And he's just enjoying the rest and relief of being done, in addition to the accomplishment of finishing another degree. Some of us here are growing in faith, growing in love for God more than we ever have. Praise God. But sometimes our days can feel pretty long. Sometimes our homes can feel pretty empty. Sometimes friends leave us. Sometimes we've said something we shouldn't have to another member here. Sometimes we feel trapped in a situation that we do anything to get out of. Sometimes we wonder if our marriage will stay together. And then there are times where we just can't get out of bed. And there are times when we haven't opened our Bibles in weeks, maybe months. There are times when praying for more than just a sentence or two feels impossible. There are times when darkness starts closing in and things that used to be enjoyable just aren't anymore. There are times when you're in the depths. You try and you try, you do what you can, but you can't get up, you can't climb out. The hill's too steep and too slippery. With every attempt and every fall, you just get a little more tired for the next attempt. What do you do when you're in the depths? What do you do when you're in the depths? Music can be a good friend when you're down. I know it has been for me. And God's given us a psalm, a song, a song of ascent to help us in the depths. That's where Psalm 130 starts us off, out of the depths. And the psalm even kind of leaves us there. There's no 
sense that the psalmist is brought up out of the depths. But it does give us a strategy for what to do when we are in the depths. And it does leave us on a hopeful note, even if it leaves us there. So what do you do when you're in the depths? Psalm 130 tells us to cry out to the Lord who forgives and wait for the Lord who redeems. Cry out to the Lord who forgives and wait for the Lord who redeems. The psalm starts us out in the depths. Look down at verses 1 and 2. Look down at verses 1 and 2 with me. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. What are the depths? The depths are literally the lowest parts of the earth, even down inside the earth. The Mariana Trench is the deepest point on the globe. It's over a mile deeper than Mount Everest is tall. The pressure there, the water pressure, is 1,071 times atmospheric pressure. I don't know if you've ever tried to touch the bottom of the diving well, the maybe 12 or 14 foot diving well at the bottom of a swimming pool. But even there, you can start to feel the pressure. and You feel your ears pop and it gets a little hard to move. Imagine miles and miles more of water pressing down on you. Imagine the utter darkness. Imagine trying to move. To be in those depths is to be crushed, to be in total darkness, to be in quiet, alone. If God metaphorically dwells in the highest heavens, then the farthest place we could be from Him would be the depths. To be in the depths is to feel far from God. To be in the depths is to feel far from God. If you've ever wondered where God was, you've been in the depths. If you couldn't understand how God could let something happen, you've been in the depths. You've felt unheard by Him, been in the depths. To be in the depths is to feel far from God. We know our psalmist feels far from God. He has to cry out to Him. You don't have to call out to cry out to someone who's near. You don't have to use your outside voice to get someone's attention who's right beside you. You only have to do that if they're far away. This is the state of the psalmist. He's in the depths. What brings us to the depths? What causes this kind of sadness, misery, numbness, isolation, even anger? Ultimately, the depths are caused by sin. All depths, all separation from God is a result of sin. This might be a a one-to-one direct correlation. You might be in the depths of sin, You might be in the depths because of your sin, your intentional, on-purpose, ongoing sin. And I think in the context of this psalm, this is the case. The psalmist cries for mercy from what? What does he cry out to mercy from? It seems to be his iniquities, his rebelliousness or waywardness, his sin. 
The psalmist, like all of us, needs mercy and forgiveness from sin. And so this psalm is speaking most directly to us when we're in the depths of sin. When we've cut ourselves off from God by choosing sin and rebellion rather than God's way. The depths, then, is a, a feeling of guilt over sin, a conviction of sin, a crushing burden, knowing you've done wrong. It's a keen awareness of your dirtiness. Listen to how David describes his sinfulness in Psalm 34. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David's sin made him feel like he was wasting away, crumbling, turning into dust. He felt like he was drying up in unrelenting heat. Like 45 days in a row of 100 plus degree temperature. Sin makes you feel like the dead grass outside that just turns to dust under your feet. We might be brought to these depths by our own known clear sin. But it's not always that clear. You might be in the depths and not be able to trace the cause back to just one sin. Sin's messy. Sinners are messy. As long as we're in this world, we'll be with people who sin, and we'll be sinning against one another. Sin's messy, complicated, and unclear. It's not always easy to draw a straight line between sin and consequences. Sometimes a small sin, even the small sin of someone else, can create a messy tangle of sin in your own life. You might be in the depths now, feeling confused and sad. You try and trace the reason back to something you did or maybe something someone else did, and you start to get lost trying to trace cause and effect. Sin's usually this way, isn't it? It's, it's usually not clear-cut. It's usually not just one person or one sin's fault. It's more like that rat's nest of extra cables I have in my closet. Sometimes the depths are a clear result of willful sin. Sometimes the depths are the result of a messy tangle of sin that's hard to diagnose. Another reason you might be in the depths is because of who you are. Another contributor to the depths might be who you are. You might just have a natural tendency toward introspection, maybe even depression. You can't stop looking at yourself. You go over sins in your head over and over and over again. You even magnify sin. You might have things from your past, just things from the way God's made you that make you prone to these depths. William Cooper, who wrote the hymn we sing often, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, was one of those people. He spent much of his life in the depths, in depression and despair, made several suicide attempts. He always saw his sin 
and rarely felt God's mercy. And this just seems to be how God made it. If you're like this, it's important to recognize that your makeup can add to your depths. Your makeup can add to your depth. Who you are can multiply the feeling of guilt and sin. Now there are two other reasons you might be the depths, and I don't think this psalm directly applies to these next two reasons. They need to be talked about. Sometimes the depths are the result of someone sinning against you. Sometimes the feeling of despair and distance from God is, though, not your fault whatsoever. Someone's sinned against you. Someone's done great evil to you. Hurt you. Abused you. Trampled on you. This psalm isn't speaking directly to your situation, if that's you. This psalm is spoken by someone who's sinned. And although we've all sinned, if you've been grievously sinned against, I don't want you to think that it's somehow your fault. I don't want you to think that you deserved that. And so the way out of your depths is to change so you don't deserve it anymore. No image bearer of God deserves to be sinned against, mistreated, or abused. So this psalm isn't speaking directly to you, but, but there are many that do. There are so many psalms that Jesus himself, the perfectly innocent one, who was sinned against and abused, can sing. If that's you, you can look to Psalms 3 and 4, maybe Psalm 139. Psalms 3 and 4 and 139. Might be good to go read later this afternoon. So that's one other reason. Another reason you might be in the depths is because of the sovereign hand of God. For this, we need look no further than Job. This is a very real reason we may be in the depths. There are times, though I think they're more rare than we think, where God sees fit to simply remove from one of his saints all feelings of comfort or nearness to him. Often in times like these, like Job, we get no answers. We can only sit and say, God is righteous and good. Even if this psalm isn't speaking to either of these last two situations, I still think you can be helped by it. There are still truths here about who God is and who He is in Christ and what He promises you that can help you and comfort you. You too can cry out to the Lord. You can wait for the Lord and find deliverance from the depths. More often than not, the depths are a result of some combination of all of these, of, of our own sin, of a messy situation, of being sinned against, all under God's wise providence. This is the world, the fallen world that we live in. This is the result of Adam and Eve's fall. None of us experience uninterrupted friendship with God the way they did in the garden. None of us do. Although God's omnipresent, He's everywhere. Our sin separates us from Him relationally. Our sin brings us to the point where the only thing we can do is cry out for help. 
Jonah knew this. Turn with me there to the book of Jonah. If you're using the Bibles, the house Bibles, that's on page 774. One of the minor prophets. You need to use your table of contents. No shame in doing that right now. Turn with me to Jonah. We'll look a bit at chapters 1 and 2. So turning there, know that Jonah's a prophet. And so he has good theology. He knows that there's nowhere he can go to escape the presence of God, of the God of all creation. What does his sin, his rebellion, make him do? Look at the very beginning of the book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. We quickly see in the story that the presence he flees from is only friendship with God. He quickly stumbles into the presence of God's storm at sea. And he's swallowed up by a fish and dragged down to the depths. What can a man do in a tomb, in a belly at the bottom of the sea? What can a helpless person do? What can you do when your sins ensnared you and dragged you from fellowship with God? Look at chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and, he, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to make my life, to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In Jonah's rebellion and distress, calls out. He cries out to the only one who can hear him. To the God who hears. The God who forgives. To the God who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God may seem far off, but he's very near. Near to all of us this morning. 
In the depths, God hears. In the belly of the fish, God hears. In the midst of your sin, your God hears. Cry out to Him. Cry out for mercy. Cry out to Him for forgiveness. He's a God who forgives. Turn back in your Bible to Psalm 130. Turn back to Psalm 130. Look at verses 3 and 4. God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God of forgiveness. This verse teaches us that we need forgiveness. We've all sinned against Him. We need to be forgiven. Our default state as humans isn't friendship with God, isn't nearness to Him. Our default is sin and separation. We've all sinned and offended a holy God. And if God were to bring everyone to account for their sin right away, right now, everyone would surely perish immediately. But God's a God of patience and grace. In fact, you could say that the posture He has towards His world, even to humanity, to we who have sinned against Him, His posture is one of grace. If God's posture were simply only divine justice, He would have ended the world long ago. If He was only a God of cold justice, every one of us would be justly condemned. How kind of God not to strike down Eve the moment she sinned. How kind of God not to strike us down the moment we sinned. God's patient with us and forgiving. And He's patient and forgiving, we see in verse 4, so that He might be feared. So that He might be feared. Fear here, like many places in the Bible, is a reverence, an awe, a rejoicing and trembling before an infinite, holy God who, though offended, grants forgiveness. God forgives so that we would fear. Think about how foolish the opposite reaction would be. The opposite reaction to God's forgiveness, the way the wicked react to it, would be, as Romans 2 says, to presume on the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience. To have no fear, no regard, to think lightly of your sin and just be okay in it and run back to it. That's not the purpose of God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness, His mercy, His gospel grace, takes sinners and transforms us into fearers, to worshipers. Jonah, for instance, after God has mercy on him, goes and obeys God. He preaches to Nineveh. God saved him so that he would fear him. God saves him so he would fear him. He forgave him so that he would worship him. He had mercy on him so that he'd obey him. We can cry out to a God who hears, who's not far off. We can cry out to a God who's forgiving. We can cry out and ask God not only for forgiveness, but also to raise us out of the depths and make us true worshipers. Do you cry out to God? Are you prayerful? 
God hears, and because He's a God of forgiveness, your sin hasn't set you too far off to cry out to Him. If you're in the depths of sin this morning, cry out to God. Where else will you go? Who else will you go to for help? Who else can forgive your sin against God but God Himself? So pray for relief. Pray that God would bring you out of the depth. Pray that He'd restore His fellowship, His friendship with you. And pray for holiness, for repentance, for deliverance from the very sins that have brought you so low that weigh on your conscience. Cry out to God for forgiveness, clean conscience, and peace with Him. This is what the psalmist does. This is what the psalmist wants. Forgiveness, a clean conscience, peace with God. And this is what he waits for. Look at verse 5. Look down at verse 5 with me. I wait for the Lord, he said. What does the psalmist do in the depths? He cries out to the Lord who forgives, and he waits for the Lord who redeems. How does God do this? How does God forgive? How will God redeem? And what exactly is the psalmist waiting for? God forgives sin. He redeems people in Christ and in Christ alone. The psalmist sitting in the depths would have to wait hundreds of years before God would redeem. The psalmist died waiting. Hundreds of years after the psalmist lived, wrote, cried out, and died, God sent His Son, Christ, into the world. Turn with me again to Mark 10. Turn with me to Mark 10. Here in Mark 10, we see another man waiting for the Lord. Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. He used to stumble his way in his dark world to the road outside Jericho. And there he would sit and wait. Wait for a a bit of help that day. Maybe some bread, maybe a few pennies. Maybe some days someone would be especially generous, and maybe it was those kind of days he would sit and hope for. Maybe it was small things like this that would keep him getting up, feeling his way back to the road, day in and day out. But maybe he was waiting for something else. Maybe he knew that God would send someone to open the eyes of the blind. Maybe he'd heard that passage from Isaiah read when he was a boy, The passage that says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Maybe, just maybe, Bartimaeus was holding out hope that that person would come in his day while he was in the depth. Maybe he'd see him with his own eyes. So when he heard about this man Jesus a descendant of King David, maybe his hope reignited. Maybe his hope reignited when he heard about Jesus going from town to town healing people. How whole towns would bring everyone sick to him and he would spend his days healing them all. How he would preach the good news to them and even forgive their sins. How he would preach that good news to tax collectors, prostitutes, poor, 
to other sinners. How he would even call those lowly people around him his mother and his brothers. How he would even raise the dead. Maybe, Bartimaeus thought to himself, maybe I could cry out from the depths after years and years of being there to see this Lord for myself. Look at verse 46 in Mark 10. And they came to Jericho, Jesus and his disciples. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus was in the pit of blindness and poverty. And like all others who cried to him, Jesus had mercy and healed him. And then Jesus showed more mercy still. Look up just above our passage of verse 45. Jesus speaking says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus heals Bartimaeus and then shows more mercy still. He makes good on his word and gives his life as a ransom for him, for Bartimaeus himself, and for many others. Jesus, God in the flesh, fully God, truly God, truly man, went down into the depths with us. He went down into the depths for us. He went down in the garden of uh, he went down in the garden and fell on his face in utter horror about what was about to happen to him. His sweat was pouring out of him like great drops of blood as he lay on his face pleading with the Father from the deepest depths a man could experience. Then he went deeper still to depths not one of us in this room can comprehend and bore the wrath of God on the cross. There on that cross, the sinless Son of God took on the penalty for the sin His own people committed. How does God not mark iniquities? We see in our psalm. How does God do that? He's crossed them out with the blood of Christ. How has he forgiven guilty sinners like you and me? By punishing his own son. Christ died on the cross, experiencing the deepest depths man can. Three days later, he did what no mere man could do. 
He climbed out of the depths, out of the pit, out of the grave. His perfect righteousness, his holy life overcame death. As Hebrews 5, 7 puts it, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for me. He paid the debt in He redeemed Israel from all his iniquities. Cries out, and he's heard. And so everyone who cries out in the name of Christ will be heard, rescued, saved from sin and from the wrath that it deserves. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, you too are in a pit. You are in the depths. You might know it. You might not. There's hope for you in Christ. Cry out to Him. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in Christ and you'll be raised up from the death. You'll be redeemed. You'll be brought near to God who was once far off because of your sin. Friends, what the psalmist was waiting for has come. Redemption is here. O Israel, O church, true Israel, hope in the Lord. For in Christ our Lord, there is covenantal, unchanging, steadfast love for you. And with Him there's plentiful redemption. Not just a bit of forgiveness. Not just a clean slate. But redemption. Reconciliation between God and man. Christ has accomplished that. Redemption for His people. So unlike the psalmist, we're not waiting for that. We're not waiting in that sense. But like the psalmist, even Christians still have to wait. Christians will still find themselves from time to time in the depths. We'll still be brought through valleys. There'll be days of darkness and winter seasons before we experience the fullness of redemption and the consummation of all things on the last day. Why is this? Why do we still have to wait? Between Christ's first and second coming, between His earthly ministry and the last day, sin still remains in the world. And so if you're alive, if you're a Christian, sin will still remain. The penalty for sin has been removed by Christ on the cross. The power of sin's rule over you has been overcome in Christ and His resurrection. But the presence of sin still remains. And as long as sin remains, a certain depth, a certain darkness, a certain separation between God and man will remain. If you're in Christ, God's declared you to be righteous, just. You are justified. That is a fact, an unchanging fact. You are and always will be innocent, blameless, and holy in His sight. That's the wonderful objective reality outside us. But inside us, experientially, we don't always feel that that's true. We don't always feel 
innocent and righteous, do we? We definitely don't act innocent and righteous all. And that's because sin is still clinging to us. Sin still clings to us. It's still even living inside us. And it will until the day we die. One day, all sin, its punishment, its power, and even its presence will be done away with. We'll experience the fullness, the plentiful redemption that we're promised here in the psalm. But until then, as long as there's sin living in us, we must wait. We have to wait. And in God's wisdom, that waiting's even good. In God's wisdom, at times, He removes feelings of His nearness. He removes feelings and knowledge of His presence for the good of His people. Some of us may feel this more intensely than others. And all of us feel it more strongly at certain times than others. Some days our sin will feel like valleys. Some days like a deep, deep pit. And while in those depths, we cry out to the Lord, forgive. While in the depths, we wait on the Lord who redeems. What does this waiting look like? How should we wait? What would godly, faithful waiting look like? I think the second half of this psalm teaches us two related aspects of faithful waiting. Two related aspects of faithful waiting. Waiting looks like hoping in the Word, and waiting looks like expecting relief in Christ. Hoping in the Word, and expecting relief in Christ. Look at verse 5. Look at 130, verse 5. The psalmist helps define what it means to wait on the Lord with the very next line. Waiting on the Lord means to hope in His Word. Waiting looks like hoping in the Word. So this means we look outside ourselves while we're in the depths to the objective realities of the Bible. It means we cling to the truths and promises in God's Word. It means we wait for God to come through on what He's said He'll do. I have a good, good friend, one of my best friends, who's loyal in every way. Every way but one. I've lived all over the country, and he travels around a lot. And he always promises to visit when he drives past me. Once he's on the road, and... He's feeling a little homesick, and he's running late, and he just wants to get home. He almost inevitably skips out on visiting. Inevitably, I'll get a call. He's an hour past the road, and he'll say, hey, I'm already past your house. Next time, I'll, I'll be there for sure. He's a great friend. I can count on him for a lot. Just not that. But God is always true to his word. He never fails to come through on his promises. And so we wait for what we know to be true. We wait with confidence in God's promises that we find in His Word. That's what the psalmist did. He hoped in God's Word. He no doubt called to mind the promise of the snake crusher in Genesis 3. No doubt calling to mind the promise of the blessing to Abraham in Genesis 12. The blessing that Paul tells us is justification. He no doubt calls to mind the New covenant blessings 
promised in the prophets of forgiveness of sin and a new heart. And we're in a better place than the psalmist. We have so much clearer promises. So remind yourself of all the promises of God's Word, the good and certain promises. Memorize Romans 5.1 and know that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Memorize Romans 8.1 and know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. Memorize Ephesians 1.3. Call to mind when you're in the depths that you are blessed with Christ with every spiritual blessing. So when you're in the depths, when you can't find relief, wait faithfully by preaching the truths of God's Word to yourself. Preach the Gospel to yourself daily. Preach the Gospel to yourself. And preach the Gospel together. Do you see the shift from singular to plural in verse 7? See on verse 5, he's saying, I, throughout the psalm, I, I, I. And then he switches to Israel. Thanks, Greg, for pointing that out the other day. So helpful in seeing that shift from singular to plural. The psalmist isn't waiting in the depths alone. He's hoping right alongside Israel. If you're in the depths, don't go it alone. Don't give in to the temptation to isolation. Press into the gospel preaching community God's given us here at Millwood. Press into relationships. Let others preach the gospel to you. Even while you're in the depths, encourage others by telling them what gospel you're hoping in while you're going through the midst of the valley. And preach also to those who might be in the depths themselves. We need one another. We need one another to point us to Christ when it's too dark for us to see. We need one another to encourage us to press on, to encourage us to keep fighting the sin we've been redeemed from. We need one another's prayers. We need to be crying out to God for one another. Each of us here should be working right now on cultivating at least one relationship in this church where we can be doing this, where we can be talking about darkness, about sin, about our need for forgiveness and mercy, about how hard it is to wait right now. Who do you have that kind of relationship with? Who do you know will preach the gospel to you? Who will point you to the promises of God? I mentioned William Cooper earlier. William Cooper had a lifelong friendship with John Newton, another hymn writer. Newton used to give up so much of himself, his time, to just go and be with Cooper. They would go on walks. They would talk about Christ. They would talk about his heart. Newton was a sweet comfort that God gave So we wait faithfully by hoping in the Word, alone and together. And second, we wait expectantly. We wait expectantly. Waiting for the Lord means patiently expecting relief. Relief from the depths. Relief from your sin that's dragging you down to the depths. Relief from the feelings of guilt. 
of distance from God, of deep sorrow, relief in Christ. We wait and we hope, not with our fingers crossed. I think this is a requirement Nathan makes us do. Not like we wait to see the Cowboys in the Super Bowl this year. We don't wait that way. We wait on something guaranteed. We wait with a promise from the unchanging God. We wait on the full and final deliverance from sin. We wait with the promise from Christ himself, who is himself merciful and compassionate, who doesn't lose a single one of his sheep, who healed every single person who came to him and touched him in faith. We wait like watchmen, waiting for the morning. Waiting for the morning. The watchman knows the morning will come. He knows the sun's going to rise. He may not know what terrors await him before it does. He may not be sure how long till it's coming up. The minutes may go by like hours, but he knows the sun will rise. We know Christ will redeem his people from sin. So we wait patiently, expectantly, on our Savior, knowing that in time, He'll bring relief. We wait expectantly. We wait actively. The watchman's not sitting there falling asleep, knowing that the sun's going to come up soon. He's scouring the horizon. He's watching for the enemy. He's clinging to his sword. So we don't wait lazily, but actively, walking by the spirit of holiness God's given us, living in light of this coming redemption, turning from the sin that brought us down to the depths, fighting temptation that's always around us, putting sin to death, knowing that one day the battle will be done. As one Puritan said, who wouldn't fight knowing victory is promised? Victory is sure. The sun of righteousness has risen, and in due time, the light will fall on you in the depths. Until then, cry out to the Lord. From the depths, wait on Him to fulfill His promises. He will deliver you in His good time, in this life or in the life to come. Some of us, like Cooper, may have to wait until heaven for deliverance. Cooper went to his dying day in the depths. Some, like missionary David Brainerd, also prone to misery and depression and depths because of his sin, some, like Brainerd, have sweet glimpses of light through the depths in this life. You've got to answer one of Brainerd's cry, one of his cries from his journal. July 22nd. Was in a dejected frame most of the day. Wanted to wear out life and have it at an end. And had some desires for living to God and wearing out life for Him. Oh, that I, I could indeed do so. He wanted his life to be done, worn out. Seven days later, July 29th, my mind was cheerful and free from the melancholy with which I am often exercised. 
had freedom in looking up to God at various times in the day. In the evening, I enjoyed a comfortable season in secret prayer, was helped to plead with God for my own dear people that he would carry on his own blessed work among them, and assisted in praying for the divine presence to attend me in my intended journey to the Susquehanna. I scarce knew how to leave the throne of grace, and it grieved me that I was obliged to go to bed. I longed to do something for God, but knew not how. Blessed be God for this freedom from dejection. God hears the cries of his people. He comes to those who wait for him. God assures us he will. Hear the benediction from 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Hope in that word, Millwood, that promise from God. He will bring you out of the depths. He will redeem you from all your iniquity. He will grant close friendship with him. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, the God who forgives, Lord who redeems. O oh Lord, deliver us from our sin, deliver us from the depths, and grant close communion, a close walk with you. Help us, Lord, to see you more clearly in Christ, to know your presence and to glorify you in our lives. Help us to do this alone. Help us to do this together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.